Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hey, everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is Tony Franklin here. talking about the band Wang Chung. Wang Chung is best known for their big radio hit song, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, but there is so much more to their story, and we're going to cover as much as I possibly can of it here today. So stay tuned. We're going to talk about some really fun stuff in a little bit. Now, a reminder of the new format for how I do these shows that I record solo. From here on out, when I do these solo episodes, I'm going to be joined by a guest. Not live, but I will have a conversation with a guest who has some particular insight in the band or topic that we're covering, and I will drop clips of that conversation in at various points of the podcast. Now, for today's episode, we have a very special guest to talk about Wang Chung. Perhaps the best possible guest. The frontman, Jack Hughes. Yes, lead singer Jack Hughes will be joining us today to give some insight about various points of his band's career. Now, full disclosure here. The clips that I will be dropping in of Jack talking about various Wang Chung topics come from an interview I did with Jack back in 2021. Talking to him was one of my favorite things that I've done on this podcast, So I'm really hoping the conversation we had in 2021 will fit nicely in here in regards to looking at the band's full career. Also, I should note, although it was recorded in 2021, I believe this material will still be new to most listeners, because Play That Rock and Roll is now a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. So again, going forward... As we cover Wang Chung's history, at certain points of the podcast, I will drop in clips of lead singer Jack Hughes talking about various topics in Wang Chung's history, and all that is drawn from an interview I did with Jack back in 2021. Okay, so with all that said, it is now time to get into the history and career of Wang Chung. So, in the words of their big hit record, Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody, let's go. Let's go, baby. Let's go, baby. Come on. on. Let's go, baby. Let's go, baby. Come on. (laughs) Being silly there. A little bit of a misdirect. We will talk about both those songs at length in a little bit. But let's get started with the origins of the band. Wang Chung is primarily made up of two members, Jack Hughes and Nick Feldman. Singer-musician Jack Hughes and multi-instrumentalist Nick Feldman met for the first time 
after Jack responded to an advertisement that Nick had placed in the classified of a weekly British magazine called Melody Maker. Jack and Nick first played together in an avant-garde group called the Intellectuals, along with a couple of other guys. And that's Intellectuals, spelled I-N-T-E-L-L-E-K-T-U-A-L-S. Hey. <laughs> now, that band changed lineups as well as the name over the next couple of years, but it was Jack and Nick who remained at the core. They finally settled on the name Huang Chung in 1980. And when I say Huang Chung, it's because it's spelled H-U-A-N-G, Chung. Now, the reason they named the band that way is because, frankly, they weren't fully formed. And they wanted a very unique name, and their early music is very, we'll say, Eastern-inspired. So it was definitely a, a Chinese influence over how they decided to name themselves. So they were signed as Huang Chung by Arista Records and released a couple of singles in early 1980. Nothing charted, but the band did show some promise. And again, this was back in the era when bands were not expected to hit number one immediately out of the gates. They were on a small label, and I think their hope was that a larger label would see potential in them and try and pick them up. And that is more or less what happened. So their first album, which was self-titled, again, Huang Chung, was released in March 1982. And they released a couple of tracks as singles. One called Hold Back the Tears, another one called China, and a third one called Ti Na Na. Now, none of these charted. And if you look at the album cover and you look at these titles, some of which I just mentioned, Tina Na, China, there's a couple of other songs on here, one called Rising in the East, and another track called Chinese Girls. You're starting to see that there is a lot of Asian imagery on this project. Obviously, that was a subject that really inspired and interested them, although I've gotta say, some of this didn't age exactly all that well, particularly the lyrics on the song Chinese Girls. Chinese girls what dance with God. Chinese girls don't count. Pull their hats around their heads and throw their Chinese out. Chinese girls. I don't know. It, it's, it struck me as a little much. Bordering on infatuation. But, you know, they weren't alone on this kind of thing. You gotta keep in mind, this is right around the time David Bowie released his hit single, China Girl, which absolutely has some problematic elements, but at the same time, it's a great song. And another favorite of mine, Sushi Girl, was released by The Tubes the year before this album came out. And if you see that music video, <laughs> oh man, again, that is something that could not be made today. But more than anything else, I would describe this album as... I guess unremarkable, but showing potential. And it marks a point that they would grow from over the next decade. And it's not a bad album. There's some decent music here. There's just no standout tracks. There's no obvious big hit single, but they would have one shortly. So before they released their next album, they decided to release a single, and that would be an early version of one of their most iconic tracks. 
And that song was Dance Hall Days. If you know the song Dance Hall Days, try to bring that up in your head and then take a listen to this to see if you notice a difference. Dance Hall Days, love. Dance Hall Days. Interesting, right? Yeah, not quite ready for prime time. Not exactly radio-friendly, at least when compared to the track that they eventually released and that became a big hit single. This is very much an early rough draft of the song. I'll be honest, I'm not sure why they released it as a single. I think it was more or less a strategy for the band to get the attention of a bigger label. Because the band had a new manager named David Massey, and at some point, he saw potential with this song to be a big hit. And I guess he convinced their label to just release them from the contract so he could seek out a bigger label that would give the band more support. And this strategy worked. Again, Nothing Wang Chung had released had charted at this point, so I guess it probably wasn't a big fight for Massey to get Wang Chung off of Arista. And he got the attention of a label which at the time badly needed hitmakers, and that label was Geffen Records. Now I don't have time to get in the weeds of the history of Geffen Records, but basically they were founded around this time, and the founder, David Geffen, who would go on to become one of the absolute titans of Hollywood, his strategy for Geffen Records was going to be, in the early 80s, sign a bunch of really big name artists and assume that they would deliver the big hits. It had been five years since I'd been in the record business, but I thought, start with what you know. You never know where it'll take you. In the case of Geffen Records, we lost money for the first five years. David signed these big name artists who commanded huge advances. So they were all quite expensive. Unfortunately, that strategy was not working in the early 80s and Geffen Records really didn't find its footing until like the mid-late 80s. But, to Geffen's credit, they must have seen some potential in the song Dance Hall Days because they took a chance signing a relatively unknown entity, Wang Chung, in 1982. And he definitely showed some faith in the band because one of the only things that he insisted that they do was change the name. And when I say change the name, I just mean change the spelling of the name. It was David Geffen who actually liked the name Wang Chung, but he felt that the spelling should be, I don't know, a little more, I guess, Americanized, a little more phonetic. So he told them to simply change it to W-A-N-G Chung, and they did. And ultimately, I think that was the right move for the band. In any case, here's a clip from my 2021 conversation with Jack in which he talks about meeting with David Geffen. I remember him being in a room in, in a meeting, and it was a meeting about the name of the band, actually. It was really early days of oh. us signing, you know, signing. Because we'd done this uh, before the band was called Huang Chung, you know, H-U-A-N-G. Yeah. Uh, and we'd done an album for Arista in the UK. And, of course, nobody could pronounce the name, or, and nobody <laughs> talked about anything but why have you got a Chinese name and all this yeah. stuff. So we were going to change it to something 
else, although we couldn't think of anything particularly. Yeah. And I remember David Geffen in his meeting saying, like, it's a great name, you know, just spell it differently you know, so that people oh. aren't alienated by it, basically, you know, uh, or not quite so alienated by it. So, uh, so yeah, so it was him, him who said, spell it Wayne, you know. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So I met him then, and I think I met him on another occasion, you know, but I didn't, like, get to know him. He wasn't the kind of guy who would be hanging around, sure. you know. So the first album that was released by Geffen Records was called Points on the Curve, and that was released in January 1983. The lead-off single is, of course, now this newly mixed Dance Hall of Days. Dance Hall Days Love! Days is an absolute bang. It's one of the best songs of the decade. I absolutely stand by that. And I don't think I'm alone in that either. Dance Hall Days hit number 16 on the Billboard charts, which means not only the remix, but also the move to a bigger label paid off. Now, there's a number of good tracks on this album, in particular one called Wait. So take a listen to this. I can hardly wait. Another single from the album was called Don't Let Go. That hit number 38 on the Billboard charts. And all this to say, this is not just a commercial improvement from the debut album. This is absolutely a critical and artistic improvement from the first album as well. There's some really good tracks here. And if you're a fan of early 80s new wave, like Duran Duran... Thompson Twins, you know, this is a record you definitely want to check out. Frankly, my only mild criticism about this album is that there are two songs in a row on the record where the phrase true love is prominent in the chorus, and those tracks are true love and the waves. To me, that was just a little repetitive, but ultimately not a big deal. Also, a little piece of trivia that I will always crowbar into my podcasts, no matter what. The track True Love was featured in a season two episode of Miami Vice. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to take just a quick break. So stay tuned, and I'll be back with more of the story of Wayne Chung. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It was actually around this time that Wang Chung started being featured on soundtracks fairly frequently. And that would be something that would occur again and again over the course of their whole career. One of the more notable appearances was the song Fire in the Twilight, which was a part of the Breakfast Club soundtrack. And I must say that, again, is one of their better tracks. Unfortunately, it just happened to be on the same soundtrack that featured Don't You Forget About Me, which is, frankly, one of the biggest and most iconic hits of the entire 1980s. So it was going to be tough going up against that. All that to say, the Breakfast Club soundtrack is impressive, and Fire in the Twilight is one of the reasons why. Their third album is actually a full soundtrack record. Wang Chung was approached by director William Friedkin to record a full soundtrack record for his film To Live and Die in L.A., I'm gonna bag Rick Masters. We got a chance to make him on a hand-to-hand buy. You can't come up with the front money. You're not for real. You're not the first agents to get next to Masters. You're not wired, are you? Now, if you haven't seen To Live and Die in LA, I would recommend it. It stars a very young Willem Dafoe, and this is a very good movie. I would really recommend this to any fans of 80s movies in general, or if, like myself, you're a fan of Miami Vice, or a fan of movies with good car chases, this is definitely one you want to check out. It's very much a 80s noir thriller, but there's some good action scenes, and there's some really good acting performances. Oh, and also a damn good soundtrack, courtesy of our friends Wang Chung. You should also note that Phil Friedkin is the director for other movies like The French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, Rules of Engagement, and the list goes on and on. So this was a fairly high-profile gig for the band to book. 
Friedkin wanted them because he absolutely loved the tracks, Dance Hall Days, and a song I mentioned earlier, Wait. In fact, Wait is included in the soundtrack, and also the film. Dance Hall Days is not on the soundtrack, but it is heard in the movie during one of the scenes. So let's cut back to my conversation with Jack Hughes, in which he talks about writing the music for the soundtrack and what it meant to him seeing this music he produced on screen. Well, I guess ultimately, you know, the, the time when I remember watching some visuals and listening to my music and being really almost moved to tears was sitting next to Bill Freakin watching the first screening of uh, To Live and Die in LA, where he'd used a sort of instrumental track that starts side two of the album, you know. Uh, oh, just, okay. And he'd, he'd kind of, it, it just completely blew me away that the music and the images just meshed together in the way that they did, you know. And I so know not, that so we, not the title track, an instrumental. No, that, an instrumental yeah. Initially, when we did the soundtrack, you know, he said to me, I don't want a song called To Live and Die in LA. You know, I, I want music, you know, to be the score, you know, to I can use. And he cited weight uh, as the kind of thing that he wanted, you know. So we worked up this track, called, which we called City of the Angels, um, uh, which is like a sort of 12 minute instrumental piece, you know, fast tempo, you know, modeled on the sort of sh the kind of things that weight does, you know, so very fast tempo, but slow moving chords over the top, you know. And, uh, and that kind of is um, what, uh, what I heard, you know, so that, that when you watch the movie now, there's the whole prologue thing, which has the title track and, uh, you know, the presidential motorcade and all of that stuff. But once all that's passed, there's this shot of a gun just firing, and then you get this shot out over LA, uh, sort of, I don't know if it's sunrise or sunset, but it's like this orangey sky and stormy and the palm trees are blowing. And it's just, it just completely blew me away, that image, the colors of it, and the way the, the, the music sounds, you know, uh, this sort of choral thing that's kind of gliding downwards all the time. You know? And uh, yeah, that to me will always be in my memory as one of the great moments of Wang Chang and, and working with Bill Freakin and oh. you know, that whole experience. It was just superb. So the instrumental track that Jack is talking about in that clip is called City of Angels. That's the track that plays over the opening credits, and yeah, it is excellent. If you watch To Live and Die in L.A., you'll probably know if you're going to like the movie or not by the time the end credits run. <laughs> Again, it's a very visually striking film. Definitely got that Miami Vice, Scarface, like early 80s charm to it. If you like that era in film, I think you're going to like this movie. And it also shows that Wang Chung was good at producing instrumental tracks which is not something that pop radio bands usually like to produce. But they didn't just produce this track. The whole side B of the To Live and Die in L.A. album is instrumentals, and they're all very impressive. Also worth noting, the title track, To Live and Die in L.A., hit number 41 on the Billboard charts. Although it was just outside of the top 40, this was still ultimately good news for the band. The music video would be featured on MTV, it would be played on the radio. Basically, it kept their momentum going as they were prepping their next release. And that next release would ultimately be their commercial high point. But before that, we're going to take a quick break so I can go over some recent stories out of the world of classic rock. 
in a segment that I call Yesterday's News. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Class of 2023 announced. <laughs> Big annual news as always. A series of iconic artists in music history are going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Among them, Kate Bush, Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, George Michael, Willie Nelson, Rage Against the Machine, and The Spinners. The only name from the fan vote was George Michael, and that's because he got over a million votes over these last couple of months, which is quite impressive. But everybody else on the fan ballot got snubbed, and that included Cyndi Lauper, Iron Maiden, Soundgarden, and perhaps the most egregious of all, Warren Zevon. Yeah, you know, Chris and I have been doing our Excitable Boys Warren Zevon retrospective, and we've been very hopeful and very positive that Warren would get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I think very much deserves to be there. And there was a lot of fan engagement. Warren Zevon took third in the fan vote. He was above Iron Maiden. That is impressive, but ultimately I'm not surprised that they snubbed him because if you didn't know, earlier this year, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame actually unveiled a new mission statement. And part of that statement reads... Born from the collision of rhythm and blues, country and gospel, rock and roll is a spirit that is inclusive and ever-changing. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame celebrates the sound of youth culture and honors the artists whose music connects us all. Youth culture. <laughs> that says it all right there. At least for Zevon. There's a video that David Letterman posted a couple of days ago in which he said Pete Rose will get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before Warren Zevon will, and <laughs> he's right. Warren was never going to get in, not this year, probably not any year. I don't know why I got my hopes up. Because even in his heyday, I don't think he was ever, like, popular with the kids. <laughs> I mean, Werewolves of London, obviously, but if you're looking at his full discography. No, he was never a hit maker. He was never an MTV darling. So I can't say I'm surprised ultimately that they did not let him in this year. Look, Steve Miller was right. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all that is is a TV show. <laughs> and if you go to it in person, it's not much more than a gift shop. So what are you going to do? All right, next story. Aerosmith announces their Peace Out Farewell Tour. But Krusty, why now? Why not 20 years ago? <laughs> That's the only appropriate clip for this. Satire website The Onion commemorated this announcement with an article titled, Local Aerosmith fans sad this last time she'll be giving Steven Tyler head after concert. <laughs> My God. Oh, boy. That is very funny. But ultimately, not the best Onion article about Aerosmith. For that, you'll have to go back to 1997, in which The Onion published an article called Fans Beg Aerosmith to Go Back on Drugs. <laughs> Just brutal. Absolutely savage on Aerosmith, and I am here for it. This tour will not include their drummer, Joey Kramer, and that's no surprise to me because they have been trying to push him out of the band for years now, and it looks like they've finally succeeded. Much in the same way Motley Crue has pushed 
McMars out of the club. It seems that Joey Kramer has been set aside by the band as well. I don't know if I'm going to get to see Aerosmith on this tour because Milwaukee or really anywhere in Wisconsin is not a part of the dates they've announced, but maybe they'll announce additional dates in the future. I have seen them once before, and if I'm being perfectly frank, it was bad. It was in 2009, and it was bad enough that when I started this podcast, one of my earliest episodes, I decided to do a retrospective of their whole 2009 tour, because the show I saw was not unique in the fact that it was bad. Most of the shows they did in 2009 were bad. It was very much a cursed tour, so if you want to learn about Aerosmith's arguably worst tour, check out my podcast about their disastrous 2009 tour. Link is in the description. With that, I'll play us out real quick here with a rare funny joke from the now all but forgotten Cleveland show. We're a joke band like Spinal Tap or Aerosmith. All right, last story today. Gordon Lightfoot passes away at age 84. Gord is one of the greatest songwriters of all time, so this news is very sad to me. If you're not familiar with him, we, we talked about him a little bit when we did our, our Bob Dylan podcasts because Bob Dylan mentioned him as one of his favorite songwriters. In fact, Bob and Gord were in the same folk music scene in the 60s. I would really recommend you go find the documentary Gordon Lightfoot If You Could Read My Mind. That is a fantastic documentary that tells his story in a very effective way. Beyond the music, Gordon Lightfoot was like a man's man, but with none of the toxic masculinity that a term like this would imply. Unlike most rock stars, I genuinely believe Gord was someone you could actually, like, look up to <laughs> and try to emulate in life. He was a very cool guy. It's sad that he's passed, but I really do hope that this will be an opportunity for people to re-examine his discography. I'm mulling over making Gordon Lightfoot the next subject of our ongoing songwriter series after we're done with Zevon. So we'll see if that happens. If that's something you would like to see us do on this podcast, please post a comment or message us on social media and let us know. In any case, I'm going to play us out with my favorite song of his. I, of course, have to say that Sundown and Record of the Edmonds Fitzgerald and If You Could Read My Mind, those are some of the best songs ever written, but my personal favorite song of his is a track called Hangdog Hotel Room. So... That will play us out, and then we'll get back to the main story. So Wang Chung's fourth album, Mosaic, was released in October 1986, and that featured their big hit song, Everybody Have Fun Tonight. I drive a million miles to be with you tonight. So if you feel hit number two on the Billboard charts. It was kept out of the top spot by another iconic 80s track, Walk Like an Egyptian. So, unfortunately, they didn't hit number one, but hey, they're right there next to another iconic track from that era. 
This is one of the great party songs for the 1980s. If you're having some sort of like 80s themed party, this has to be on the set list. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is an absolute must include if you're doing that kind of thing. I think this is a fun song. something that has gotten criticism over the years because of the self-references in the lyrics. So here's a clip from my conversation with Jack Hughes in which he talks about how the band did get some heat for referencing themselves in the lyrics. Uh, you know, it's a bit like us using our name and, you know, everybody had fun tonight, everybody Wang Chung tonight. I mean, that was highly frowned upon at the time as being like... Oh ghastly bit of self-promotion do you know what I mean within a song yeah. you know whereas now it's like god it's, it would even bat an eyelid if somebody <laughs> said their name a few times I mean it's like yeah what everybody does right you know well yeah particularly in pop, <laughs> pop songs now and with uh, rock yeah. art or, uh, ramp artists you know they'll yeah. they'll drop producers names in the track <laughs> which is very weird a red one the cataracts. I think when we did it, you know, we were aware that it was like in bad taste, but uh, considered at the time in bad taste. But I kind of thought, screw them, really. Do you know what I mean? It's like if, if you've got a problem with it. I, and in a way, I was quite enjoyed winding this. Oh, yeah. Up, do you know what I mean? It's like, God, I feel concerned about that. Again, this is a song much like We Built This City that became a punching bag of sorts for later era critics who needed to produce content dunking on 80s music. I think that sucks because I think this is a really upbeat, positive song, and it has certainly proved that it has stood the test of time. What's interesting is that there is another song on this album that was almost as big of a hit, but it really didn't stand the test of time. Take a listen to their second single off of Mosaic. This is called Let's Go. Let's go, baby, let's go. chart success than Dance Hall Days. But Dance Hall Days has absolutely overcome it as far as lasting popularity goes. And that's definitely more of a compliment to Dance Hall Days as opposed to an insult to Let's Go. I actually think it's kind of too bad that Let's Go has seemed to have left the public consciousness because this is a good pop song, at least for the era. If you like 80s pop, this is a good track. I also gotta say, because I know he's a listener, Tom Brady should absolutely use this track as the theme song for his Let's Go podcast. <laughs> so tweet him. Get Tom Brady to use Let's Go by Wang Chung for the theme song for his podcast. That would be great. <laughs> oh, let's go, let's go, baby, let's go, baby, come on. Here we go, let's go. Let's go, presented by Hertz. Tommy, how are you today? Had better Mondays, Jim, but, uh, you know, tough loss against a good football team. Let's go is brought to you by and presented by Hertz. 
every sport in the end of the day, you're trying to score more points than the other team. And it's obvious we got a lot of work to do with One I like in particular, it's called Betrayal. And kind of like I was saying about the record points on the curve, this is a good example of 80s pop rock. This is perfect for fans of artists like Howard Jones, Thompson Twins, Duran Duran. If you like those groups, points on a curve, and especially this one, Mosaic, are going to have tracks on here. I can almost guarantee you are certainly going to appreciate some interesting personnel on this album, too. Michael McDonald is featured on the backing vocals of a track called A Fool and His Money. Now, wait a second. A Michael McDonald song with Fool in the title? Quick, call the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. Is it yet or is it yet? I don't know, but let's find out. Cheating up to Stephen Davidson said to see where it lands on the yacht ski scale. I asked all of the guys who used to do the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast if A Fool and His Money would qualify as Yacht Rock, and they all ignored me. <laughs> so I guess the jury's still out on this one. What do you think? Just like a The song has Fool in the title. It's about a fool, and it features Michael McDonald on backing vocals. So that, you know, meets the subject qualifier, meets the personnel qualifier. 1986 is a little late for that era, but they've made exceptions for that kind of thing before. What do you think? What's your number for the Yatsky scale? I'm going to give this one a solid 69. Nice. <laughs> this is so stupid. Let's move on. <laughs> Now, having this big radio success meant they were catching the attention of the music industry. They were picked up to be the support act of Tina Turner's Break Every Rule 1987 tour. That is a very high-profile gig. And looking back, this is definitely something I should have asked Jack about when he was on the show. Because Tina Turner, 1987... That's her at, like, the height of her powers. Or, I should say, at one of the many heights of her powers. Absolutely an impressive feat to be picked to open for her on that run. Wang Chung was also selected to be featured in a series of TV commercials for Michelob Beer as part of Michelob's The Night Belongs to Michelob advertising campaign. And it wasn't just one commercial either. There was two separate commercials. One that featured To Live and Die in L.A. and another that featured Everybody Have Fun Tonight. So here, take a quick listen to this. In the dark of the night Every time I turn the light Feel the stars are not in heaven In the dark of the night The dark of the night The night belongs to Michelob. Now, sharp listeners might have noticed that the lyrics in that advertisement are not the same as what's on the original record. And that's because Michelob requested that the band re-record some of the vocals. And I know this because I recently tweeted a video of this advertisement, and Jack responded to me on Twitter saying, quote, I remember having to rewrite the line from the original. I feel that God is not in heaven... 
as this was deemed unsuitable for the Michelob audience. In the ad, he sings, I feel that the stars are not in heaven. A subtle change, but probably the right call for a national TV advertising campaign. (laughs) When Jack was on the podcast, I did ask him if he's ever had a Michelob, and he confirmed that he has, but was not exactly impressed with it. (laughs) And that's also quite fair, because as cool as those commercials are, Michelob beer sucks. (laughs) All right. Let's keep moving on here. Their fifth album, called The Warmer Side of Cool, was released in May 1989. A song called Praying to a New God is released as the only single. It hit number 36 on the charts. That is actually quite the drop-off from their last record. I hate to say it, but the writing was on the wall for these guys. But let's take a listen to their 1989 single, Praying to a New God. Stop praying, praying to a new God. There's a couple of other tracks here that I like as well. There's one called When Love Looks Back at You and Logic and Love. Both of those are good. This album is more of a mainstream rock sounding record as opposed to their previous releases, which are more new wave. And I think that was a smart move because the new wave era was definitely over by this point. So in an effort to stay more contemporary, they went more in a rock direction. And I understand that move. Now, that said, I think their strengths as a band are ultimately better suited for new wave. But staying in that lane was not going to be the right move for them commercially. My only other criticism is that the album is a bit long for my taste, but ultimately not the worst thing in the world. And I think everything I said here is stuff that the band was very much aware of when it was going on, because the band would quietly go on hiatus in 1990, and they would all but sit out that decade entirely. There were some big changes in music trends that were approaching, and Wang Chung just did not have the popularity to make it through without totally reinventing their sound from the bottom up. And I don't think they were in a place to do that. The other thing that was going on with them is that pretty much everybody involved in the band wanted to do different things. Jack wanted to make more arty, progressive type songs. And Nick Feldman was more interested in producing mainstream rock music, like the stuff that was on the warmer side of cool. Of course... Their label, Geffen, just wanted pop radio hits, and neither Jack nor Nick was particularly interested in releasing Everybody Have Fun Tonight Again, you know, or whatever that would be. Also, their manager, David Massey, who had got them onto Geffen Records, he just wanted out. He had other projects he wanted to work on and was in the process of leaving his role with the band. So, quietly putting the band on ice was really the only move for them at this point. Going into the 90s, Nick Feldman started working more on the business side of the music industry, a lot of the the behind-the-scenes stuff. And Jack would repartner with William Friedkin to score Friedkin's movie The Guardian in 1990. In 1995, Jack was recruited by Tony Banks from Genesis to form a group called Strictly Inc., 
and they released one album in 1995. I wonder if it was the Night Belongs to Michelob connection that made Tony think of Jack as Genesis was, like Wang Chong, used in commercials for Michelob beer in the 80s. I sincerely doubt that's actually the case. Now, the Strictly Inc. album was released in the UK, but not in the United States, although you can stream the album now. Here is a clip of Tony Banks talking about what it was like working with Jack. He's quite a left-field sort of thinker when it comes to music, and the, the, so it was quite good, nice for me. And, you know, he was quite happy to, 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 you know, to sing my songs pretty much as I'd written them, but he would add a flavour. He had a certain kind of voice that was a little bit manic at times, which I quite liked. Um, which suited some of the songs really well, I think. And uh, again, we had a good time, good relationship, and I still still see it, still know. And uh, uh, he wrote a couple of lyrics, I think he wrote a couple of very good lyrics, actually, the, um, particularly Piece of You. It was great with Jack, because he was perverse, you see. I said, I don't like the, the phrase, and the shutter clicks, whatever. So, of course, he used it every verse after that. You couldn't stop him, you know. And I thought, oh, God, it's like me, obstinate, you know. And I thought, no, that's OK, I can, I can live with that. A track called Only 17 was the lead-off single for the album, and let's take a listen to that. subject matter as Winger's 17, but I will say the lyrics here are not nearly as creepy as that track. Most of the music here is synth-driven, so it somehow manages to be both adult contemporary and also, like, prog rock. And I must say, this is probably closer to the kind of music that Jack had wanted to produce with Wang Chung, as opposed to the more mainstream rock stuff they had done on The Warmer Side of Cool. I think the only real problem with this Strictly Inc. record is the length, which I will say is almost always the problem with prog rock. It's just too long. <laughs> almost all of the tracks here are over five minutes, and the final track on the album is 17 minutes long. Hey. And because this record was not a big hit commercially, the band did not continue on after it was released. Not too long after, Wang Chung actually reunited in 1997 for a Greatest Hits CD. And part of that project was releasing a new original track, which was called Space Junk. And I'm going to talk about that in a bit, because it was featured on actually a, a fairly recent piece of media, which meant a lot to the band. So I'll cover that in a bit. Otherwise, one of the more interesting things on this Greatest Hits CD is the original version of Everybody Have Fun Tonight. When Jack wrote that song, it was not originally designed to be the big radio pop hit that it is. It was actually designed much more in the style of something like Hey Jude by the Beatles. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody have fun tonight Everybody wang chung tonight Everybody have fun tonight It was actually producer Peter Wolf who convinced Jack to remix it, make it more radio-friendly, more of a pop dance track. Now, the guys would do a couple of one-off dates in 1997 and 1998, more or less to test the waters for a full return, but ultimately they decided not to do that 
at the start of the new millennium. Instead, Jack would tour as Wang Chung without Nick in 2000. Not a huge tour, just a, a couple of dates, I think, over the summer. Uh, he did mention to me that he enjoyed that tour, but ultimately not a particularly important era in the band's career. But their proper reunion was only a few years away. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But now we're going to take a short break to go to a segment that takes a look back at some of the biggest moments in classic rock history in the past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years. This is called Back in Time. So Huey Lewis, take us back. Is this a 50s or 1999? years ago, on May 19th, 1973, Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group hits number one on Billboard. This is an instrumental track that showcases Edgar Winter's many musical talents. This was the only number one hit for the band, although they would follow this up shortly after with another big hit called Free Ride. Definitely something that most classic rock fans would know. Also, a rare instrumental track that hit number one. There were a couple of others but this might be the best of them all. All right, let's wind the clock back even further. May 11th, 1963, The Beatles' Please Please Me hits number one on the UK album charts. The way I see it, this marks the dawn of the classic rock era. The opening track from the record was I Saw Her Standing There, so let's take a quick listen to that. One, two, three, five! Bob Dylan would be released on May 27th, and shortly after that, the Rolling Stones would release their first single, which is a cover of Chuck Berry's Come On on June 7th. So, May 1963, to me, that's when some of the biggest names in classic rock history got rolling, got started. <laughs> and this is why I call it the dawn. So, so here we are, these 60 years later, still loving this music, still talking about it. Moving ahead to the 80s, May 28th, 1983, New Wave Day at the second US Festival, featuring a lineup that had The Divinals, In Excess, Wall of Voodoo, Oingo Boingo, The English Beat, A Flock of Seagulls, Stray Cats, Men at Work, and The Clash. Yes, the US Festival, one of the greatest concert events of the 80s, of really the entire classic rock era, happened over this weekend in May 1983. May 29th was Heavy Metal Day. That featured Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Triumph, Scorpions, and Van Halen. That is a murderer's row of early 80s metal. That is an excellent lineup. The third day was May 30th, 1983. That was just Rock Day at the second Us Festival. That featured Los Lobos, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, 
Quarter Flash, Berlin, Missing Persons, U2, The Pretenders, Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, and David Bowie. David Bowie, who had just scored a number one hit on the charts with Let's Dance the week before. So looking back on these three days, I would have liked to have gone to any of these shows. But I think if I could only pick one, I would go to Rock Day. If only for those last three. Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, and David Bowie. <laughs> that, that is fantastic. Several of the performances from this festival have had official releases. But unfortunately, there is not an all-inclusive box set of the entire festival. And I gotta say, I think that is a travesty. There should be a collection of this whole weekend, because this is a really special time in classic rock history. And I'm glad that some of this has found its way to official releases, but it's all scattered, and it's, it's just not enough. We need the whole thing. We need the whole package Time Life, where are you? We need you for this. Please put the Us Festival packages together. I will order over the phone and make six easy payments of $29.99 or whatever it is. <laughs> we need this box set. The Us Festival, please. All right, and to play us out, here is a clip from a press conference for the Us Festival in which Joe Walsh answers a question about why the Eagles turned down an offer to reunite and play the festival. His explanation got a particularly big laugh out of Diamond David Lee Roth, who was sitting right next to Joe. This is a lot of fun. Take a listen. It was a uh, uh, very interesting uh, offer. I think all I can say is that uh, the Eagles decided that... Um, uh, money, I say this humbly, but money really should not be uh, uh, a major part of a decision to uh, regroup and get back together. Uh, we didn't feel that uh, that should be one of the top motivation uh, to get back together. And secondly, it uh, wasn't enough money. Final segment. Let's wrap this up here. The video game Grand Theft Auto Vice City was released in 2002 and it featured the song Dance Hall Days on the soundtrack. This is what got me into Wang Chung. I loved Vice City. I played it all the time back when I was in high school and I would play it just so I could drive around in the car and listen to their various radio stations and enjoy the music on those stations, in particular tracks like Dance Hall Days. And like I said, when I had Jack on the show, I had always known the song Everybody Have Fun Tonight. I knew that from the radio, but it was hearing Dance Hall Days in Grand Theft Auto that made me want to learn more about the band. So here is a clip from my conversation with Jack in which he talks about how Grand Theft Auto Vice City impacted the band. Again, like many things with Wang Chung, um, it was completely out of the blue. You know, there was no kind of like us touting the business or stuff you know but um whoever was designing that game loved that track wanted to use it and uh obviously they sought permission and stuff you know and uh and we were happy to give it you know but um not, nobody knew at that time i don't think that it would be actually a a, a real 
channel that would bring a lot, lot more younger people into, into the Wang Chung orbit. A couple years after that, in June 2005, Wang Chung reunited and appeared on a TV series called Hit Me Baby One More Time, which was a TV show that brought in veteran bands to play their biggest hit alongside a cover of a contemporary pop song. For the episode that Wang Chung was on, they showed up and, of course, played Everybody Have Fun. And then the contemporary pop song that they covered was, of all things, Nelly's Hot In Here. <laughs> which I gotta say is pretty wild. Now, this was actually a particularly uh, joyful experience for the band because it had been quite a while since Jack and Nick had appeared together, and they were happy with the final product. This was definitely a challenge for Jack to, to sing this song in particular, so when he came in on the show, I had to ask him about it. So here is a clip of Jack talking about his experience singing Nelly's Hot In Here on national TV. We had these uh, list of songs. I mean, there weren't many songs left on the list. Um, Toxic was one, which was, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, but the other was uh, Hot In Here by Nelly. And I remember phoning Chris Hughes, who produced Points On The Curve, which is over your left shoulder. And, uh, uh, and sort of gave him the list. There were four or five tracks. And he went, Hot In Here, you should do that. And I said, you can't be serious. And he was like, no. You, you could nail that, that would be really amazing. So I sort of <coughs> did a little demo of it. Yeah, and just sort of got into it actually, you know, and, uh, and I've never done a rap song before in my yeah. life. And it is actually like super hard to learn it, you know, because it's less like a lot of lyrics, much more lyrics than your average um, pop song, you know. But, uh, but it was fun to do, and I think it did take people by surprise. If you want to hear the track in full, it has been released, actually, just recently. I think last year there was a compilation CD that included a newly recorded version of Wang Chung performing Hot in Here. So uh, you can find that. I think it's pretty good, and I think his performance on TV is pretty good. He looks the part. He didn't mess up the lyrics. That was a big if, but I think he nailed it. Now that they were working together again, they were inspired to release some new music, and... They got back in the studio and put out an EP called Abducted by the 80s in 2010. Now, the first half of this EP is re-recorded versions of their biggest hits. That's not particularly interesting, but a lot of bands do this kind of thing. And I will say they have an acoustic version of their song, To Live and Die in L.A. That's probably the most interesting part of the re-recorded versions of their big hits, and I'm not one who's partial to acoustic songs for the most part, but I must say, I do like this one. The second half of the EP are original new songs. There's one called Rent Free, which I think is pretty good. phrase, living rent-free in my head, has very much been a meme for a couple of years now, but this song was released back in 2010. Now, I know that Jack did not come up with this phrase, but I think he was a little ahead of the curve, given how much I see that phrase used in various tweets and memes online today. Not very important, but kind of funny. Okay, moving ahead to 2010, the aforementioned Space Junk was used in the pilot episode of The Walking Dead. 
It played over the final scene and end credits of the first episode of The Walking Dead. Yeah, you in the tank. Cozy in there? Once again, this is a very high-profile gig. And besides to live and die in LA, this is probably the best use of Wang Chung's music in a movie or TV show. So here's a clip from my conversation with Jack in which he talks about this song's usage in The Walking Dead. And uh, that was a game, something that just came out of the blue. You know, Space Junk was a track that we recorded in the late 90s, 97, I think, as a sort of bonus track, in a sense, for our first Greatest Hits album. So if you wanted to do a Greatest Hits album and um, uh, Shortest Album in the World and all those jokes, you know. But anyway, they did the Greatest Hits album and they said, you know, can you, they gave us a bit of money and said, just go in the studio and do something new. So it was just sitting on this album, and then suddenly um, we got this request for it to be used in The Walking Dead, not realising that it was going to be used for the end credits of the first episode of the first season, you know, and that Frank Darabon, who was producing that um, Great uh, show, yeah, was uh, a massive fan of that track. You know, God yeah. knows how he got to hear it or whatever, you know, but, but that he specifically conceived that scene around Space Junk and, you know... Um, so that, that, that was very kind of, that makes you sort of feel like, wow, you know, there, there is this sense of you do good work. Um, and I say that with all due modesty sort of thing, but you do good work. People hear it and it catches their ear and it's, it finds its time. A couple of years later, Wang Chung released their sixth album called Taser Up in December 2012. It includes the original tracks that were on the abducted by the 80s EP. It also includes a contemporary remix of Dance Hall Days. And I will say there's some good songs here. This is something that would definitely satisfy any old school Wang Chung fan. It, it doesn't sound like they're chasing their old sound from the 80s. It sounds like the appropriate evolution of their sound from what they had done in the 80s. So if you like what they did in the 80s and you're curious about what artists who were successful in the 80s sound like in a more contemporary setting, this is a good album to check out. Their seventh album, called Orchisography, was released in May 2019. This is basically a Greatest Hits album, but all of the tracks have been re-recorded with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. It's an orchestra album. A lot of legacy acts do these kind of records. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I happen to think this one works really well. Everybody Have Fun and Dance Hall Days both lend themselves very well to orchestral production. So if you like albums like this, I would check this one out. Here is a clip of the 2019 version of Dance Hall Days. We will go on praise when I, you, and everyone we knew me think, how many versions of Dance Hall Days have been officially released now? <laughs> I mean, seriously, let's go through a couple that we've mentioned already. There's the original single from 1982 that was on Arista Records. There's the most popular version, which was released off of Points on a Curve in 1983. That's the one everybody knows. 
There's one called the Flashing Back to Happiness remix on their 1997 Greatest Hits album. That's more of a techno dance remix. There's the just straight re-recorded version on the Abducted EP in 2010. There's the version that I mentioned just a minute ago from Taser Up in 2012 that was called the Psych Magic Remix. And now there's this orchestral version. <laughs> and that's not even counting all the various club remixes that are fairly typical for pop songs. So, and what did we just go through? Six versions of this song? <laughs> well, hey, listen, if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. But they weren't trying to fix it. I think they were just trying to have some fun with what is one of their most identifiable tracks. So I've only seen Wang Chung in concert once. That was at Milwaukee's Summerfest in 2010. And when Jack came on the show, he surprised me because I mentioned that I had seen him at that show. And he told me that that was actually his favorite gig ever. And he wasn't just trying to be nice to a local guy. I saw another interview he did with somebody else in which he mentioned Summerfest in Milwaukee as his favorite show of all time. And that totally blew my mind. I did not realize I was in attendance for such a special show for them. So here's a clip of Jack talking about Wang Chung's appearance at Milwaukee's Summerfest in 2010 and what made that gig in particular so special to him. It's one of my favorite gigs ever, actually. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I sometimes, um, when people sort of say, you know, do you have any great memories of, you know, live shows, that would be one of them for, for sure, you know, because I felt when we came out, you know, the place, we were playing in a kind of tented area, you know, and there were maybe sort of 300 people sitting around, you know, pretty casual. But as we played a sort of half hour set or whatever it was, 40 minutes, the place gradually filled up and, by the end there were people i could see standing outside and you know there was a whole vibe and uh, and we played dance all days as the last song i think and the audience response was just something else you know and i remember standing right at the front of the middle in the middle of the stage uh, and just taking the applause you know because i think in the past not in the recent past but certainly back in the 80s i found it quite hard to deal with all the sort of chaos of stuff and even with acknowledgement in a way do you know what i mean and um you know it was all kind of like yeah let's just move on to the next thing but this i thought no this is something you've worked for and something that many people would give a great deal to experience you know and uh, and that kind of affirmation and it was a fantastic feeling and i and i really value it deeply you know so everybody who was there cheering and clapping thank you <laughs> i should also mention that jack appeared on my podcast in 2021 because over these last couple of years, he's been producing his first ever solo work. He released an album called Primitive in 2020 and another record called Electro Acoustic Works 2020 in 2021. So if you're curious to see what Jack Hughes is producing uh, more recently, I would recommend checking out both of those albums. Otherwise, Wang Chung is on tour this summer. And this tour is going to include a triumphant return to Milwaukee Summerfest. So I definitely plan to see them there at that show. I'll definitely post a review on my YouTube channel uh, if I do. And part of the reason why I'm recording this podcast is to encourage you to go see them if they come to their town. They put on a fantastic live show, and I, I think their catalog is one that 
is due to be rediscovered by fans. I think they have a lot of great material and they perform it at a very high level. So I'll just close with this. Wang Chung is a damn good band. Their big 80s radio hits stand the test of time and they have a deeper discography that should absolutely appeal to fans of New Wave. So if you're partial to that genre, I really encourage you to check out the records they put out all through the 80s, in particular Points on a Curve and Mosaic. The only thing that disappoints me a little bit about the band is the fact that they never released a proper live album. Now, I don't know if that's something that's in their control, but if it is and it's been their decision that there doesn't need to be a live album, I have to say I think that's a mistake. There should be at least one proper live album in every artist's discography because live settings are an integral aspect to any band's story, and at least one of those should be caught on record. But that's just my opinion. So, Jack, if you're listening, please, let's hear that live album. I'm sure you guys have some great material in the vault. But with that, I really just need to give another special thank you to Jack Hughes, the lead singer of Wang Chung, for appearing on this podcast in 2021. As I said earlier, this is one of my favorite interviews that I've done on this show, and he was incredibly nice and fun to talk to. It was a real treat to have him on as a guest, especially because that was fairly early in this show's run. So I appreciate him making the time for me. So if you want to see that interview in full, that is on our YouTube page. The whole interview is video, so you can watch it if you'd like. It's also in our podcast feed. And I will post a link to that episode in the description of this one. So please check that out as well. And then as far as what's coming up next on this podcast, we're going to have part four, which will be the conclusion of Excitable Boys, which is the Warren Zevon retrospective I'm doing with my buddy Chris. I'm going to do another solo episode fairly soon, and that one's going to dive into the music and career of the southern rock band Molly Hatchet. Yeah. So we're shifting gears, and we're going down south for that one. Also, I have more interviews in the works. I have not determined a date just yet, so I can't announce who those are, but they are coming soon. So stay tuned for more interviews on the horizon. Otherwise, I need to thank Michael Skitch Skitchiano for producing that excellent new theme song that we debuted last year and are still using now and for the foreseeable future. I love that track, and if you like as well, please find him on Twitter, at Skitch Music. And with that, I'm going to play us out with one of Wang Chung's best songs, one I mentioned earlier in this episode. This is called Wait. I'm waiting for you, but you're very late. I know you're going anyway, and I can hardly wait. Evidently, there's a difficulty. I know you can anyway, and I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, 
If you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. I can hardly wait. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.